Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back to Bring Home Sandrine, a podcast covering the disappearance of Sandrine Jordan. This is episode 5, John. My name is Graham Crowley. Thank you for joining me on this journey. I'm continued to be overwhelmed by the many people who comment. Thanks again. And a shout out to the Facebook admins. They do an awesome job collating the information as it comes in. I have no idea where this journey will take us. With my previous podcasts, I had clear ideas about the lines of inquiry I wanted to follow. The stories also had clear ideas about where they wanted to take me. I learnt it ended up being a mix of the two. I start going down one line of inquiry, and that leads me somewhere else. This podcast has been created for an adult audience. There is discussion about suicide and death, so listener discretion is advised. The thoughts and opinions in this podcast are mine. This episode is about John, the last person to see Sandrine alive. There is no suggestion he was involved in the disappearance of Sandrine. Queensland Police did not consider him a person of interest nor a suspect, but by the very nature of her disappearance at his place, it is important to flesh out all the circumstances of his involvement. I could not tell the story without it. From time to time in this episode, you will hear words which are written by John or by the detective sergeant who investigated Sandrine's disappearance. When you hear them, they are their words but not their voices. And a shout out to Gary and Anne Cross of Bundaberg. Thanks for listening. Anne and Gary are grieving the loss of their son Michael, aged 30 years, who died in January 2016 in suspicious circumstances. The coroner ruled suicide, a finding the Crosses refused to accept. I travelled to Bundaberg in 2021 and met with Anne and Gary with a view to broadcasting a podcast on the circumstances surrounding Michael's passing. Unfortunately, I was unable to assist at that time. The offer remains open to revisit the case should further evidence become available. Some feedback for you. Listener Samantha wondered whether it would be possible to have a group of volunteers search the area along Lagoon Creek behind the acreage properties on Tomlinson Road. I think that is an excellent idea, but a big task. In a future episode, you will hear of at least one other possible search area in Mullaney, north of Brisbane. And because of the podcast, other locations may become known. For that reason, I would prefer to discuss any suggestion of searches after we know the exact number and location of search areas. 
Maybe then there can be a call for volunteers to step forward and we'll go from there. But be advised, I think a minimum of 30 volunteers would be needed. Listener Tiffany contacted me. She was working in Tomlinson Road in 2016, about a kilometre down the road from number 123, back toward the entrance and only way into the road. She and a co-worker were in the reception of the aged care facility located there. They watched a car pull up, having travelled from the direction of the dead end. The male occupant got out of the car, dug a hole with a shovel and buried something straight across the road from reception. This was four years after Sandrine went missing. Tiffany had gone to school with one of Sandrine's sons. They were in the same grade. She knew Sandrine well, as she had met her many times. She knew John. She was friendly with one of his sons, but added that on the few occasions she met John, he was usually intoxicated. Tiffany was a member of the youth group in the church across the road from 123. John's sons were not members, but she thought one of John's sons had gone there occasionally. Tiffany had followed the story of Sandrine's disappearance from day one. She wanted to help in any way she could. I was inclined not to do anything with her information. Too old. Too long after Sandrine's disappearance. Nothing to directly connect to Sandrine. What persuaded me was the fact the car came from the direction of the dead-end section of Tomlinson Road and Tiffany's connection to the family and case. Taz, her partner Jono, and I met Tiffany outside the aged care facility. Jono was armed with a metal detector. We searched the area but could not find anything. Still, it had to be done. It would have played with my mind if we hadn't, and Taz would not have let it go either. Tiffany very kindly flew her drone over Lagoon Creek behind the acreage properties around 123 Tomlinson Road. Her photos have been added to both Facebook pages. They are worth looking at. You'll gain some understanding of the dense vegetation immediately behind 123 Tomlinson Road and adjoining properties. It would be a very difficult area to search properly, but likely possible. Thanks, Tiff. Listener Karen sent me a lengthy email. Thank you, Karen. This is part of what she had to say. I just want to say thank you so much for doing this podcast about Sandrine. We lived in Caboolture at the time Sandrine went missing and were upset at how she was portrayed and hardly at all as well. We were aware of some great community-minded people working hard to find out what happened to Sandrine. I just want to bring up a point about something Jono was asked about. Why didn't he ring the police? His response was, I broke a promise to Sandrine that I would not ring her brother. So first a deflection, then as if confessing to something, showing guilt for something. Sandrine was in between homes and was known to come and go from friends' places and Jono was well aware of that. Thanks again. We pray that one day Sandrine will be brought back to her family. Kind regards, Karen. I have been thinking long and hard about what we learnt in Episode 4, about Tomlinson Road, about Sandrine, about John. What do we know at this time? A lot, actually. More than I expected to know this early. We know John was the owner of the property. It was listed for sale before Sandrine went missing and was sold before she went missing. The property sold in May 2012 
but we know John was still living there on 13 July 2012. We know John was the last person to see Sandrine alive. And at that time, there was a woman named Terry living on the property in a caravan. Both interacted with Sandrine that Friday. Their versions varied as to what Sandrine did. We did hear Sandrine was constantly looking toward the front gate. What you didn't hear, but I have read, was that Sandrine was anxious. She was nervous someone may arrive at the property she didn't want to see, or perhaps was nervous about seeing. Here's what Christine said in relation to that time. She had positioned herself in his house where she could see the driveway and was watching the driveway. And she kept on looking at driveway at the driveway at all times. Does John know more than he has said? Only John knows that. He would have asked Sandrine what she was anxious about, right? And perhaps Terry did as well. One of John's two sons arrived after school with a mate. They loaded motorcycles into John's van to go to motocross. Taz told me she did not interview the boys because they were minors. Taz did interview the woman, Terry, who gave conflicting accounts to John about Sandrine's activities that Friday afternoon. Terry said this in a later message to Taz. He had been binge drinking for a few days, hence his attacks on me in my van the previous two nights and the next night after she disappeared. So that's why I got my friend to pick me up the next day and got my van picked up a couple of days later. My friend happened to call, and while on the phone, Jono started attacking my van and hit my dog and punched my walls in an attempt to get in. Jono is not someone I ever wish to see or hear of again. He is a wolf in sheep's clothing and a violent, abusive drunk. Terry also said she does not believe John had anything to do with Sandrine's disappearance. John later sent an SMS message to a Jordan family member claiming Sandrine had taken off down the back of his property and the police needed to search the back of the property. John told Taz Sandrine was asleep inside the house when he left. Terry said she thought Sandrine left with John in his van. Did Sandrine go in John's van? Did she leave the property at all? One of the concerns for me with all this was the fact that these witnesses were not interviewed months or years later. They knew from the get-go Sandrine was missing. Why are there so many confusing versions of events? We know there was a function at the church across the road. The entrance gate to that property and the entrance to 123 are only 80 metres apart. Very close, actually. The gates are slightly offset. Cars leaving the church would have a plain view of anyone standing at the front gate of 123. Cars entering or leaving the church had to drive past the front gate of 123. And they would be travelling slowly, having just left the church grounds or intending to turn into the church grounds. If Sandrine was standing there in the rain, she would have been particularly obvious. You heard in the last episode, calls went out to the congregation for anyone who saw anything or anyone at the front gate of 123. Someone from that group messaged the Facebook page 
to say she heard two men talking and a woman screaming that night. This may have occurred around 9.30pm, but was not confirmed. One witness has Sandrine and John walking down the back of the property, but returning about 30 minutes later. Neighbour Jan heard three gunshots around the day Sandrine went missing. A few days later, she told police who had set up a tent outside the church during the search of that property about the gunshots. It does not matter what the police did or didn't say to Jan. What is important is whether that information was logged and acted upon. According to Tiffany, John did not own any firearms. It has been claimed John replaced the carpets in his house around the time Sandrine went missing. Carpet was found behind Jan's property three doors down. It had apparently washed down the creek. Photos of the carpet can be found on the Facebook pages. We know Taz found items behind Jan's place in 2015. Clothing and items apparently similar to what Sandrine was wearing and had possession of at the time of her disappearance. Black pants, a purple top, a bra, a hessian bag, a shell, 20 beer cans, a screwdriver, a belt and sunglasses. The items were wrapped in black plastic and carpet. John had a nursery business at time and used a lot of black plastic. Jordan family members recalled one of the family had a shell, which was, in their words, the other half of the shell found by Taz in 2015. Unfortunately, with the passage of time, that shell has been lost. The items possibly being exposed to the elements for three years would be difficult to obtain DNA from, despite being wrapped in plastic and carpet. We know around this time the Queensland Health Forensic Science Services, the QHFSS, was a train wreck. That is a story all by itself. But we will likely never know if there was any DNA because the coroner ordered the evidence destroyed. There were claims police did not search adjoining properties in July 2012, just John's property. Following episode 4 being broadcast, one of the Facebook page admins forwarded me an email from the detective sergeant in charge of the investigation into Sandrine's disappearance. The email was dated 2016, shortly after the ACA program aired. The email was addressed to the Jordan family. Christine has since told me the family emailed the officer with a list of concerns that they had and the email from the officer addressed those concerns. And where you hear QPS, that is an acronym for the Queensland Police Service. And SES stands for State Emergency Service. The email said in part, In relation to the land search, as previously advised and contrary, to any information you've received from sources outside the QPS. All yards and bushland on Tomlinson Road were in fact searched by the QPS in the week after Sandrine's disappearance. This included a highly trained search and rescue coordinator with the assistance of police dogs, SES and uniformed police. Why would there be contrary information floating about? Either a search was conducted or it wasn't. 
I have heard comments from the Jordan family that they don't believe the search was adequately conducted, but the detective sergeant confirmed it was. That clarified the matter once and for all. But to be sure, I called neighbour Jan. She could not remember if her property was searched in 2012. It may have been, but she stated she definitely was not questioned at any time by police. She referred me to Scott, who used to live next door, two doors down from John's property. I called Scott. He confirmed police and SES searched his property after Sandrine went missing. They also interviewed him. But then I read the following comment from an SES volunteer. This comment landed on the Facebook page. I have eliminated all identifying details of the author. The Queensland Government, and the Queensland Police in particular, love to play shoot the messenger. I do not play that game. Instead of acknowledging that maybe their role was inadequate, they will go after the messenger mercilessly until they pummel them into silence. I have arranged for a female to read out the comments, but do not assume the message came from a female. I was on a search for Sandrine. There were only a few of us, and the police officer gave us a basic rundown and showed us a photo of Sandrine. It was the first time in my time as an SES member that I was given the instruction to look up. From the very beginning, they suspected suicide. Some clarification. The SES member provided details of their lengthy service. The messenger provided details of the search area. The term look up means the searchers were instructed to look in the trees to see if there was a body swinging by the neck from a rope. Sorry, Detective Sergeant. I have doubts about the searches conducted. And questions. The email continued. I have reviewed the forensic testing of the exhibits located in August 2015. No DNA was located on these exhibits. The origins of the exhibits cannot be determined at this time, and although investigations will continue in this regard, it is not suspected that they belong to Sandrine. The area where they were found is also prone to floods, and the items were not there during the initial search. It is therefore suspected that they were brought there or alternatively uncovered by floodwaters. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I find it extraordinary that as part of the investigation, police did not interview the residents of the property where the buried items were discovered. 
I note the officer concluded the items did not belong to Sandrine, but he did not explain or detail how he reached that conclusion. How did he know the items were not there during the initial search? Although he then went on to answer his own musing by adding, alternatively, uncovered by floodwaters. And how exactly would you conclude the items did not belong to Sandrine? By talking to the family would be a great start, but that did not happen. Neither Christine nor Philip ever saw the items recovered from Jan's place, just photographs of them, and not police photographs, photographs taken by Taz and Co. on the day, and they were never questioned about the clothing. My concerns over that stunning find include, but are not limited to, the following. You have a woman who has been described wearing specific clothing at the time she went missing. Similar clothing, including a bra, and therefore highly likely the other items were also female clothing, are found in what I call suspicious circumstances. After all, wrapped in plastic, then in carpet, appears suspicious to me. And those items are found in the immediate area where the missing person was last seen. I would really like to know how the QPS concluded the items were not connected to Sandrine. More questions than answers. I believe the decision not to show those located items to the Jordan family had potentially catastrophic implications in this case. The case ultimately went from missing person to suicide. With that located clothing, it could likely have gone from missing person to homicide. I hope I am wrong. It is relevant to remember that the investigator closed his file and submitted his report to the coroner in January 2015, recommending suicide. The clothing was found in August 2015. That would have presented a conundrum for the officer. Did he then reopen the investigation, rewrite the report, add the findings and the results to the report, and resubmit to the coroner? I am confident the coroner never heard about the clothing and other items being located. Again, I hope I am wrong. If you recall the coroner's report, she went into great detail about a clairvoyant witnessing an abduction of a woman. She reported the police dismissed that information, and so did she. No such similar comments were made in respect of the located clothing. I would go so far as to say, had the coroner known about the located clothing, she would have either A, returned an open finding on cause of death, and or B, recommended the file be handed over to the homicide squad for further investigations. The officer's email continued. Please remember that although I acknowledge the Jordan family will not have closure till we find Sandrine, at this time we do not believe that Sandrine's disappearance is a result of homicide. We have never dismissed that this is a possibility, but there is very little evidence that supports this. After considering all evidence, we believe it is highly likely that Sandrine's disappearance is a result of mental illness and or suicide. There is significant evidence which supports this. Our determination hasn't been a throwaway decision. Our determination has been made after a lengthy and thorough investigation. The coroner will still consider all evidence and will make an unbiased decision based on the evidence.
If the coroner has any doubts, they will request further targeted police investigations and or order an inquest. Unfortunately, the coroner likely never got to consider all the evidence and make an unbiased decision based on the evidence. How many times am I allowed to say, I hope I am wrong? The takeaway sentence there for me was, There is significant evidence which supports this. Okay, what evidence? You have listened to the coroner's findings. Unfortunately, when I read the coroner's report several times, I did not read of any significant, compelling evidence that Sandrine committed suicide. Clearly, the Jordan family didn't either. Had they read such compelling evidence, likely they would have accepted the coroner's findings and moved on with their lives. Unfortunately, the more I dig into this case, the more evidence I'm finding to categorically dispute a finding of suicide. I look forward to reading the police report, which will no doubt contain the significant evidence he was referring to. I hope I am right. The email continued. In the meantime, I strongly advise resisting the urge to make any further unsolicited approaches to witnesses, including indirectly through the media. We have already received one complaint from John, and I anticipate complaints from others are not far away. I can understand John wanting to shut down any speculation he was involved in the disappearance of Sandrine. Unfortunately, I doubt that will ever happen until John answers two questions. 1. What was he doing at 10pm on the very night Sandrine went missing, sitting at the end of a dead-end street, 160 metres in a straight line from the front of his own property, for more than two hours, apparently surveilling his driveway. Who was with him? What were they arguing about? Unfortunately, John, your answer of, I can't remember, just won't cut it. And secondly, John really needs to expand on the comment he made to ACA, which I find truly bizarre. And these are his words and his voice. Can you think of any reason why anyone would want to hurt Sandrine? Again, there's different possibilities there, but I can't prove anything, so. And the detective sergeant's comment in relation to that clangor was as follows. The versions provided by witnesses on ACA come across very genuine. They have given me no reason for concern and they are not incriminating. What parallel universe was the detective sergeant on when he made those comments? John was likely not in a position to prove anything, but the detective sergeant was most definitely in a position to investigate John's claims, or have the claims investigated. Or perhaps he did. We shall have to wait and see. If I get the opportunity, I intend to ask John those two very questions. The email continued. Whilst I do not agree or condone the tactics being used by the media in these stories, which border on defamation of a number of key witnesses, I do sincerely hope they prompt someone to come forward with more information that may assist. Channel 9 would ignore such a comment. The officer would, or should, be aware Channel 9 have a battery of lawyers to ensure nothing defamatory is ever aired. 
but to a layperson with little or no training in the law, they may be intimidated by such a statement and avoid pursuit of any further publicity. Was that comment designed to shut down further unwelcome publicity by members of the QPS? And that reminded me of a comment written by QPS about me as a result of my very unpopular investigation of the murder of Leanne Holland. The QPS were very unhappy about the ongoing media coverage in that case. The detective sergeant in that instance wrote, has resulted in some potentially defamatory comments being made by Graham Crowley. I ignored the comment, but I can understand how some people could be intimidated. We heard in episode 4 the first suggestion Sandrine may have been involved in drugs heavier than marijuana. That information remains unverified. As it was uttered by John, it must be treated with absolute caution. Was he deflecting suspicion from himself or was he being truthful? Time may tell. We heard John put forward several versions of what happened that afternoon. When confronted about that, John claimed he was merely putting forward theories about what may have happened. John claimed he had no reason to harm Sandrine. We heard he cared for Sandrine and told her family they were going to move in together and become partners. They were soulmates, he said. Sandrine refused his advances, according to the family. Who, apart from John, knew about Sandrine being his soulmate? The family certainly was not aware of it. After Sandrine went missing, we heard of three women who stated John used to ring and text them constantly about police not searching the back of his property, and the back of the property needed to be searched for Sandrine. The women claimed he called them at odd hours and a lot of the time was drunk. A guilty conscience or merely trying to help the family find Sandrine? We heard John rang Sandrine's brother at about 10pm and again at 11pm to tell him Sandrine was missing. He told ACA Sandrine did not want him ringing her brother as she was worried he would have her committed to a psych ward. I have to admit, when I heard he made those calls, I was surprised. What made him so concerned that he felt he needed to ring her brother that very night? What made him so concerned that Sandrine had disappeared? Was she supposed to be staying the night at his place? Was she expected to go to motocross? Her jacket was on the fence. He apparently called out for her name. She didn't answer. He went to motocross and then came back with the boys told the boys that he was going to go for a drive to go and look for her. One time he's told me the boys came with him. One time he said the boys went to the church across the road. So I've had two different versions with him in that department where he's told me he dropped the boys back off and they went to the church across the road. They had this um, youth group kind of thing going and that was that. And he went looking for Sandrine. On another conversation I've had with him, he said that the boys came with him and drove around and one of his boys, Matthew, I think, I believe his name was, pointed out, oh, there she is at the bus stop. But for some reason, he dropped the boys back off at the church thing, youth group, and then went back out looking for Sandrine. And later she said this. 
The next day, Jono called my brother up again. My brother then called Jono up. He's told her, him that Sandrine stuff was at the house. All the Sandrine stuff was at his house. Come and grab it. Neighbour Jan claimed John's body language during the ACA interview suggested he was lying when he stated he did not know anything about Sandrine's disappearance. We learnt in episode one that Sandrine was worried in the days and weeks before her disappearance. She wrote more than once she was in fear of her life. She told family and friends she was in danger. She had upset the wrong people, she said. She declined accommodation at her sister's house. She would be placing them in danger, she said. I spoke to her three days before she went missing and she told me at the time that she had stuffed up, sent the wrong email and she was now in trouble. That's the last time I've ever spoke to my sister. Was that the reason she was anxiously watching the front gate at John's place? In 2022, John sent an SMS to Christine This is part of what he wrote. Sandrine gave me your brother Philip's name and number on the day she disappeared. The day she disappeared. Asking me not to call him unless there was an urgent need. When I did, he said, don't worry, she will turn up. Sandrine had turned up out of the blue that day from her mother's place. Did Sandrine give John her brother's details because she was in fear of her life? If so, what for? And from whom? Did the police hear about this? What did they do with that information? The detective sergeant wrote that John was given Sandrine's brother's contact details in the week before her disappearance. Maybe he was mistaken. In another SMS, John said in part, Nobody cared when I spoke of a white XD or XE Falcon station wagon and occupants loitering at my front gate. On that subject, does anyone know who may have owned an XD or XE White Falcon station wagon in the Caboolture area in 2012? We have been told John was interviewed by police and a statement taken. We have been told Terry, living in the caravan, was also interviewed and a statement taken. As were the two boys, one being John's son. Already, I am thinking the occurrences around Tomlinson Road at the time Sandrine went missing and the concerns around the located clothing warrants a coronial inquest, not just a coroner's investigation, which some call a tick and flick of the police investigation. Brad was another male mentioned in the coroner's report and the ACA program. Brad messaged me last week. He had heard about the podcast. He told me he was willing to meet and clear up some information. Stuff he had already told the family and the police. Before I go saying a whole bunch of things about him on hearsay, his words, I readily agreed to meet. At that point, Brad told me he did not want the interview recorded. That was, and is, a deal breaker. Recording our discussions protects both him and me. I tried explaining that to Brad, but he stated he has nothing further to say. He is not a person of interest, for a reason. His words again. I am still willing to meet with you, Brad. I am happy to meet at a mutually convenient place and time, but the interview has to be recorded. In December 2022, 
Christine, Sandrine's sister, applied under FOI laws for access to the police file in relation to Sandrine's disappearance. She has now received a reply from QPS refusing her application. This is obviously a setback to the Jordan family in their search for justice for Sandrine, but the issue will be considered further. That's it for Episode 5, John. Please join me in Episode 6, Rosetta Bunton. What an interesting story. The first deviation from the path I had planned to go down. I am hoping a listener can solve the puzzle of the unkind, nasty Rosetta Bunton. If you have information about the disappearance of Sandrine Jordan, I would love to hear from you, particularly if you contacted Queensland Police but were not interviewed, or where you were interviewed and you feel your information was not acted on. I would also like to hear from you if you have previously posted information on the Facebook page Missing Sandrine Jordan or elsewhere that you believe is significant and relevant. My email address is graham5353 at live.com. That's G-R-A-E-M-E 5353 at live.com. Discretion and confidentiality is absolutely guaranteed. If you would prefer to remain anonymous, that too is perfectly fine. Go to the website www.whokilledleanneholland.com. You can email me from there. Your email address is not recorded on that website. I have placed these contact details in the show notes for your reference. Please rate and review the podcast for me. If you follow the podcast, you will be advised when a new episode drops. The two Facebook pages are Missing Sandrine Jordan and Graham Crowley Podcast Investigations. This podcast was made possible with the awesome assistance of the ACAST Creator Network. Music Inevitable Hope by RKVC. You'll find all my contact details in the show notes at the end of each episode. Thank you for joining me.